Bob Murphy Show, episode 132. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. My guest today is Scott Bayer, who is the founder of the Market Urbanism Report. So let me just tell you a little bit about Scott himself. He's an urban affairs journalist. He writes columns for Forbes, Governing Magazine, The Independent Institute, and HousingOnline.com, and gives regular speeches and media interviews. So market urbanism, let me just tell you what that is. It's the cross between free market policy and urban issues. The theory calls for private sector actions that create organic growth and voluntary exchange within cities rather than ones enforced by government bureaucracy. So we're going to have a lively discussion here. I think you'll enjoy it. We're basically, it's, we're using the framework of free market economic policies to talk about problems that plague big cities that, you know, wouldn't come up so much in the suburbs. And uh, I think it's a pretty interesting discussion if you've never heard these types of topics discussed before. So without further ado, here is my interview with Scott Baer. Well, Scott, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you, Bob. So I guess as by way of introduction, you want to just explain uh, how you got into this market urban. Well, why don't you define what the term market urbanism means, and then how did you focus on that particular topic? Because I think for a lot of listeners, Jane Jacobs is the only person you know who who's has such an, an interesting specialty, and she wasn't, as far as I remember, like libertarian-ish per se. But anyway, I'm <laughs> I'll, I'll stop and let you talk. Go ahead. Sure. So uh, market urbanism is the cross between free market policy and urban issues. And people don't generally put those two concepts together. So I want to define what market urbanism is a little bit more specifically. So I think on one hand, market urbanism is a philosophy and really a theory. And we're asking, how would cities function under a completely free market without the government? Mm -hmm. So in, in that sense, it's kind of like it's kind of like an ANCAP and um, and hyper capitalists and libertarian type philosophy where we're effectively saying if you didn't have what we traditionally think of as public services and cities were instead uh, a combination of the thousands of different inter interactions between different private sector actors mixed with infrastructure and larger services that are often that are also privately run how would cities end up functioning? And so the reason I, I describe that as a theory and a philosophy is that that's not exactly the status quo around the world right now. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to go to hardly any country and find a fully privately run city. And so market urbanism, besides just the theory, is also a set of pragmatic reforms that I think are much more likely to pass politically in cities. And so they're not necessarily full on ANCAP or libertarian, but they're kind of like pushing in that direction. And so the, the different sets of market urbanism reforms that I like to really focus on and that I think will apply to the modern political context in cities 
are having to do with housing and transportation and public administration. Okay, great. So, so that, that's great. And there's tons of material we can cover here, obviously. Um, but, but how did you, can you just give us a little bit of the, you know, autobiography of what, you know, were, were you an ANCAP or a libertarian first and then you got interested in cities or vice versa? I'd, I'd say for me personally, I actually began more being interested in cities. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have necessarily a, a hardline philosophy, like a political philosophy, but um, I spent a lot of my late teens and early 20s living in cities around the country and um, becoming really interested in different political issues um, and really like quality of life issues relating to cities, like why are um, – w- why is housing so expensive in cities? Why is there so much homelessness? Why is there so much traffic congestion? Things like things of that nature. And so I think um, I spent a pretty prolonged period, you know, really having these questions and and trying to research and really understand the nature of these problems. And that's when I stumbled upon some ideas that you might say are market urbanism ideas. So um, I read Jane Jacobs, as you mentioned earlier, and uh, she had really insightful opinions about how like not having top down planning, but having bottom up mutual exchange capitalistic type interactions actually actually bring a lot of creativity and prosperity to cities. And so she was a very early influence. Um, But then also there was a you know, you were asking about the market urbanism concept and really what's the origin of it. There was a there was previously a blog called marketurbanism.com, and that's really the first ever market urbanism type uh, blog that came about. And they were their series of writers were very influential in my thinking during this research period and kind of brought me to the conclusion that a lot of the problems that exist in cities result from top down planning mm-hmm. and government outcomes and not allowing the market to work. And so I uh, created a spinoff organization called Market Urbanism Report that is designed to really further popularize the market urbanism idea and bring it more into the mainstream. Okay, great. So, so yeah, like I said, there's a ton of topics here, and that's so. So yeah, it's it's funny because it's it wasn't until Jane Jacobs because I I had um the book I did the politically incorrect guide to capitalism. I think there were some issues in there, you know, having to do with. Uh, stuff like uh like zoning laws and that's some stuff yeah. i cribbed from her that i hadn't even i hadn't even heard the idea before because on, on paper it seems like yeah who could be against zoning laws like you, you know you don't want some store opening up next to your house or whatever but she made the point that well no it used to be in like new york city that people like the, the ground floor was all the shops and whatever and then the owners lived right above and so the benefit of that was the kids would be playing the streets and the you know the owners would be upstairs looking out and keeping an eye on everybody so it minimized crime, whereas now in major cities, like at least New York and Chicago, I, don't, I can't speak to other cities, but it's, you know, the, there's the, the district with all the, you know, the commercial district, and then that's a ghost town on weekends. And then and so right. if somebody wanted to break into an office or whatever, it'd be, it'd be a lot easier because there's nobody around. There's no witnesses. So anyway, just right. little things like that that had never even occurred to me. Um, so I'm, and this is interesting that that's like your whole your whole area here. So I don't know, is there, what do you, I'll leave it up to you. Like, are there topics you think that are good ones to start with to get to warm people up to thinking about this sort of thing? Well, I think you hit on it right there. Mm -hmm. Zoning is quite frankly, probably the biggest one. And so, um, 
I think from a if you're look if you're trying to look at cities and figure out from a libertarian perspective or an ANCAP perspective or a market urbanist perspective, how should we be thinking about cities? The first thing that we should really be going after is something like zoning. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and zoning, just to uh, kind of like define it, is, is a form of regulation that polices how land can be used, uh, the amount of people who can live on land. So in other words, the density and also just the, the general layout of cities uh, is very much affected by zoning. So if you were to look at um, a typical zoning map in the United States, a vast majority of it is probably going to be colored yellow. And so that is single family zoning, basically a house that needs to be surrounded by a yard and have a driveway. And it can't really be, in a lot of cases, there's no flexibility to that model. So that's how a city needs to be laid out. And then you'll have a section designated to hospitals and a section designated to retail and a, and a section, you know, a certain amount of parking that needs to exist in every section and on every lot. And so it's, it's kind of like um, zoning really micromanages from the top down the way that a city needs to function. And I think that and so it's kind of offensive to me at a philosophical level. Mm-hmm. But then also when you look at the specifics of zoning, that's when it really gets bad, like the sort of like the the very specific things it's doing in cities. So, for example, uh, as you were mentioning before, New York used to be a place of mixed uses and, and parts of New York City still very much are because they were built before zoning. So you can walk out of your apartment and have basically your entire daily needs uh, able to be met within walking distance. Well, most of the United States cannot be built that way because they were built after zoning, after separated use zoning was introduced. Um, Another big thing that zoning is really causing a big problem is the housing affordability issue. Mm -hmm. So going back to the single family zoning, you know, if you can only put, if you can only subdivide your city in a way that has large lots that each have their, have one home on them, that might not matter so much in a place of low demand. But when you're talking about places like Los Angeles or San Francisco um, or Boston that have really high demand pressures, you know, it, single th- things like single family zoning or really any form of restrictive zoning is really going to create a housing shortage in those types of places because there's so many people who want to live there because they're good jobs markets. But if you can only build a certain number of units on a per acre basis and it's very limited because of the zoning, then it's kind of like a way to guarantee that your city is going to have a housing shortage and have, you know, be really expensive. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, I don't know, well, probably is on your radar, but within, I don't know, the last five years or so at at least, um, even a lot of progressives who normally would be gung-ho for government planning, yeah, you know, they've sort of had, there's been a backlash against zoning laws in, you know, and I guess just because the rents have gotten so outrageous on the West Coast that even people at Vox and Slate or whatever recognize, wait a minute, if you restrict the supply, that might make the price higher. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. It, it's become kind of a bipartisan issue. Um, it's also, a, it's a really politically complicated issue. So in the cities that have been, so in the cities that are most affected by zoning and by high housing prices, 
uh, you are starting to see this sort of uh, internal soul searching of, of basically saying, hey, we have this form of top-down government regulation. It often was written. It also it often had racism in its roots when it was first written. Like a lot of a lot of early deeds and zoning laws actually did have racialized language within them that were that were designed to exclude certain people. And so I think it's uh, and then of course it's it's had the the consequence of making housing more expensive as well. So I think it's uh, led to a lot of soul searching within mm-hmm. democratic and liberal progressive cities to say, hey, like maybe we need to question this idea and reform some of it. And so that's why if you were to look at the the leading examples of zoning reform around the country, it actually is taking place in progressive areas. Uh, Minneapolis just passed a law last year that effectively outlawed single family zoning. So it, it said that you can build uh, duplexes or triplexes by right all the way across the city and and land cannot just exclusively be zoned single family. And then uh, California uh, has brought together various progressive coalitions to try to pass a state housing, uh, a state law that would upzone much of the state. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like it's hyper these hyper left wing people, per se, are actually the ones who are attacking zoning. And on the other hand, um, a lot of conservative Republicans are trying to defend the, the idea of exclusive zoning. So you're seeing a lot of rhetoric out of the White House right now and out of uh, Carson's HUD administration that's effectively saying, well, Democrats are coming in and trying to ruin the suburbs by right, right. lifting the single family zoning. Um, and then people who are libertarians are kind of in the middle. And we've all we've always been saying that zoning is bad. And so it's at this point, we're identifying more with the left on this specific issue than we are on the right. So it, ha- it has been one of those kind of interesting political dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess I saw, I think it was Tyler Cowen. I hope I'm not misattributing it, but I think he was saying something. He was kind of ambivalent, at least the thing I saw, this is a few years ago, where he was saying something along the lines of, it's not obvious, like if you, let's, so he, he was saying something along the lines of, yeah, if they were going to introduce new zoning, is a, like the libertarian position would clearly be to oppose it because that's interfering with existing property rights because it's not so clear if there's rules, regulations in place. And so people bought homes with the understanding that this is what the kind of neighborhood I was buying into. And then if they go ahead and let, you know, get rid of the zoning laws and all of a sudden, you know, I wouldn't have paid as much for this house and it, it lowers my resale value. So it's not obvious. So it's kind of like the same thing, like with taxi medallions. I don't, I don't, have you done anything on on cabs per se? Like, is that is that a good segue or? Yeah, well, I, so I understand that would be the same argument. Um, you know, people who buy taxi medallions pay a lot of money for can, the medallions. Can you just for the benefit of the listener who doesn't know exactly how that? So, how, how do cities historically or traditionally how do they regulate? Like, oh, we can't just have a free market in taxis because otherwise we'd be buried in yellow cabs. So, what what do they do to regulate how many cabs are available in a big city? Right. So pre-Uber, um, they did have, they did used to have a very robust medallion system where basically the argument you just said that city transportation departments would not want their cities to be flooded with unlicensed and unregulated cabs that might cause traffic congestion. So they would issue medallions. And the issue always with those programs is they didn't issue enough medallions. And so there was a shortage of cabs uh, based on 
the supply of the cabs compared to the actual demand in the consumer market for having cabs. And so they'd issue, medall- they'd issue medallions, which were the license that enabled people to drive a cab. But because they were, there was a shortage, they would um, sell for obscene amounts. I mean, like- Like hundreds of thousands of dollars, people, right? In, like in New York City, I think they were over $100,000. More than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, okay. I've, I've read about medallions being seven figures. Oh, okay. Because you have these secondary business people who would buy them up and then re- try to resell them mm-hmm. um, and, you know, basically gouge the price. And so, yeah, you had a you had this kind of crazy medallion system and then Uber came along and was uh, less regulated or had a different set of regulations and brought a lot of competition into the market. And so now a lot of those medallion owners are – um, seeing the the natural market price of their medallions drop dramatically compared to what they paid for them, and uh, yeah, that's kind of caused a problem. But yeah, I, I guess I would look at that from the perspective of um, I'd rather see a natural market exist for that kind of service. And so, while it's unfortunate from the cab driver's perspective, I think it's good from any. Any form of deregulation generally is good for the consumer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I and again, I I don't even remember. I'm pretty sure that it was Tyler who said what I just the argument I just said, and I don't remember yeah. what his, you know, if you want to be, but but I I have heard. So this is not Tyler. I don't want to confuse listeners. I have heard other free market economists say, like with Uber and whatever, that they thought the government should buy out the the cab drivers. In other, you know, in other words, like like pay them the difference, and you know, like in other words, our new policy is causing ju- a genuine economic harm to you in the sense that you know you're yeah. you're the market value of your thing dropped by hundred grand. So what we'll just make you whole, you know, with the taxpayers' will, and the idea being so the the the, the argument was it's a move toward it's it's an efficient move. The the gains to the winners outweigh the losses to the losers. But instead of making cab drivers bear the brunt of the losses, why don't we just spread it across, you know, the community as a whole by having, you know, taxpayers cover it. So I'm, I'm guessing you, you would not endorse that. You would just say that's, you know, your tough luck for buying into the government cartel. Well, I actually wrote an endorsement of that oh, policy okay. <laughs> several years ago. Um, that, yeah, that see, I did a lot of research free. before this interview. I knew that. <laughs> Yeah. No, I wrote that article. I wrote an article saying something to that effect in Forbes okay. uh, several years ago. So that might have been what you had read. Uh, well, but, no, someone said it to me yeah. verbally and it wasn't you. But <laughs> Oh, OK. Well, I mean, yeah, I think I think that's a, a fair argument. Um, and what I was writing effectively was saying that if this sort of uh, reimbursement could then increase the political support for broader taxi deregulation. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think that would be a path because right now I, I think a lot of people who are against services like Uber and Lyft are looking at the, at the cab drivers who have gotten royally screwed over by having the, the government mm-hmm. effectively backtrack on their earlier policy. And this would effectively just be a, a way of saying, well, we're going to cover for your losses on this because we did backtrack. and But now you have to go forward with the the more liberalized rules and it, and it creates more of an equal playing field. Yeah. I suppose some other purist economists might come along and say, well, no, I mean, a taxpayer who never takes cabs or Uber shouldn't be having to pay for it. Like it should be like the people who take cabs and Ubers who pay, you know, to, for the new regime that is the, is the, they're benefiting from. Like it, in other words, if you get more narrowly 
target who's paying, you know, because again, it's obviously an efficient move if, 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 if the gains of the winners outweigh the losses to the losers, but. Yeah, but I, um, as far as that specific mindset goes towards zoning, mm-hmm. um, I don't really, I don't quite see it that way. I, I don't think it's quite an apples to apples comparison. I think with the situation with zoning, when people move into a neighborhood, sure, it might be zoned a certain way, but the rezoning of that neighborhood is not necessarily going to decrease their property values. I think if anything, if you're rezoning it for more intensive use, mm-hmm. it will actually increase their property values. So if we're going to look at a very specific case, like the liberalization of what they call accessory dwelling units, which is a, an additional unit that you that can be built on somebody's single family property. Mm. If you were to have a zoning deregulation that allowed that, that would not decrease the value of the homeowner's property. That would actually increase the value just because they're able to further utilize right. their land. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Okay, so I guess, yeah, good, good point. I'm glad you pushed back on that. I, I guess the argument would be something like, if I were going to keep my house the way it were, or maybe I'm in a neighborhood that has a homeowners association, so we in this neighborhood can't, you know, I can't even put up political signs or whatever. I certainly can't, you know, uh, <laughs> build, build a thing for a renter or whatever. So g- yeah. given that we're not going to alter our property, the fact that what used to be, you know, a little sleepy suburban town next to us now has a bunch of mid-rise apartment buildings, that makes our, and there's now more congestion and stuff like that. I try to go to the grocery store and I, I got to wait six minutes just to turn left or something that that makes it less appealing to live now in my house than it was before the change in zoning laws. I guess that would be the argument. Well, so I, I have a couple of things. I mean, I, I think the the main um, prescription, I guess, I, I would suggest for that is that I think there's a difference between private HOA-style deeds mm-hmm. and municipal city-run zoning. Right. And so for people who want the stability, who want neighborhood stability – I think it, it's perfectly fine for them to go into an, an, a private HOA-run neighborhood that has a deed that will keep the land and the property a certain way. Um, I would kind of view that as like that's a market urbanist alternative to zoning. Like the people who want stability and don't want change in their areas, they can go to the deeded to the deeded neighborhoods. But I I don't really view government zoning as something that's like justifiable. I, I think it's a, uh, um, I think when you're talking about non-private neighborhoods that are run and serviced by the city, I think there should be more of an obligation that if you're going to move into such a place, it should be more open to the public mm-hmm. and that you, you shouldn't be having, it shouldn't, it should not be restrictively zoned. And I think that kind of defies the um, original purpose of what a city is and so I view it as I view that as more of like a form of regulatory capture of trying to, you know, use regulations to hardwire your own financial interests or lifestyle interests at the exclusion of somebody else. Mm-hmm. And while it may be acceptable in a private neighborhood, I don't think it's acceptable in a city. Yeah, yeah. And of course, with all this stuff, I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate and just, you know, letting yeah. you say things on stuff that like some of the listeners might be uh, puzzled about. So uh, let's yeah. see another one. I'm just curious. Cause when I, when I lived in New York for a while, when I went to NYU, like some of the rent controlled areas, I mean, 
I couldn't figure out like, how is it not just that some real estate developer comes in and pays the city council a million dollars under the, like each person under the table or something. In other words, there was such, so much money lying on the table as it were and in, in, in order to get rid of the rent control, knock these buildings down and rebuild them. And I guess, what is it just that the political opposition from like the community, the people politically representing the, the, you know, the poor or lower income tenants who would not be able to afford the new buildings and they would call it gentrification and stuff like that. Like, is that, in other words, economically, it was crazy that there was this prime real estate sitting there that could have easily, you know, had a lot of middle income people there and bustling businesses and stuff. And yet it was like a rundown area and it was because of zoning. Yeah. Well, I think rent control or yeah, and, a lot and rent of the control, reason yeah. rent control sticks around is because, uh, for one, it's very difficult to evict tenants a lot of times. So, so, uh, sorry, I didn't finish. What I meant to say was like, I would think they could go in and buy off every single person too. That, 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 yeah. that was the, the link in my argument I forgot about. That, in other words, like the gains to the winners were so much higher than the losses to the loser that I, I couldn't understand. Like, you know, why doesn't Ronald Coase show up and say, guys, and, and have them pay off and like move them somewhere else or so. I guess, because they would say, you oh, know, this we grew up in this community. We want some rich person coming in. And I don't know, but, but has you ever... It just seems to me it's so crazy some of these existing neighborhoods and why somebody doesn't come along and 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 make it grease the wheels of trade with just throwing money around. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think you would in order for them to do that, in order for a developer to do that, they would have to buy off every single tenant and say so you're going to have holdouts because yeah. in order for a New York building to just be demolished and and completely reconverted into market rate units. Mm -hmm. And if it, if it is an existing rate controlled building, then every single tenant has to be out of that building in order for that conversion to happen. Right. And then so, like I mean, Mrs. Morrissey, who's been there since 1962, starts yeah. raising her price. And then the, yeah. Yeah, then the developer you're, you're has to go a, to yeah. the uh, the crime boss and be like, hey, can you take care of a little problem I got over here? And yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, you're probably right that it's, and also just that the idea of that scheme of a New York newspaper got a hold of that, that wouldn't look good. And they would, you know, there would be, so I guess that's partly why it wouldn't work. Cause it would just, people wouldn't like it, even though you could say there's literally not a single loser here. Everyone is being compensated and, and agrees to this and they still wouldn't like it. Right. J just like with the congestion, like it, it astonishes me, you know, I would so I commuted, I, my grandma lived in Long Island and I would for a, a certain period there, I don't want you, that's, that's why I would come in you know, on the train and or, or geez, sometimes I would drive and it would take you forever, like hours just to go in. If you went, try to go on work rush hours with people going to work every single day. And I really think the homicide rate is higher because of that pot. <laughs> like I, th you know what I mean? Like not on any given trip, but just the, the tension and the stress and whatever I like surely yeah. in the long run, fewer people would be murdered in New York city if they had, you know, privately <laughs> owned roads and market prices. And, but yet when I would try to explain that, to people like this is crazy. Like everyone complains about the traffic and everything. And I would say, well, yeah, right. so just privatize it and they would charge tolls and let the, you know, and everyone's gonna be like, oh no, the only rich people would drink. Like it's so insane to people that you would let a private business own the road and charge a market price for the for the traffic or the, you know, the toll. Yeah. Well, I don't think um, if they were to do that, I don't think only rich people would drive. I think right. what would happen is um, you know, when you have so there, a lot of times there's like dynamic pricing. A lot of the, the best toll roads usually have dynamic pricing where the price of using it depends on the time of day and the level of congestion. And it's all 
index to that. And so, you know, I, I think in a lot of cases when you have dynamic pricing, people will the rush the peak hours, morning and evening, will have the highest prices. And so, yeah, maybe only the rich people will be able to use the road at that time, but it will also distribute demand across the day because, you know, 3 p.m. and 9 p.m. and midnight are not going to be as expensive. And so it, it has a way of like dispersing demand and having people who don't have to be making a trip right in the heart of rush hour to make it at a different time. And so um, I view it really as a way to increase the capacity and usage of the road without actually having to have congestion. Oh, right. I totally agree. That's partly why I was telling the anecdote, which is I was so astonished that they thought that they'd be, you know, be like saying, well, no, I mean, if, if airlines were privately owned, only rich people would fly. Or, you know what I mean? Like, or if, if cars were privately produced and owned, then only rich people would own cars. Like, it's you, you wouldn't use that <laughs> argument anywhere. And yeah, like you're saying, we're having like eight lanes of traffic or something, and that's all going to be guys in their top hats with their chauffeur. Like, that's crazy. Of course that, you know, yeah. it wouldn't just be rich people, like you say. And the other thing, too, in case some of the listeners have never heard these arguments spelled out, let me just cover our bases. All the stuff they, so right now they do have dynamic pricing or, you know, congestion pricing, or I forget what the term they use is. But, I mean, they, they have that right now in major cities where, yeah, the, the toll to go over the bridge or whatever is higher right. at certain areas of, of, of or certain times of day. And um, it's just, it's not enough. Like, in other words, what if they privatize it, presumably it would be higher to re ease the flow. And that does all the stuff. Like, they have HOV lanes right now, high occupancy vehicles. Well, you wouldn't need that stuff. It would just, the market would take care of it. You know, that yeah, people, yeah, people would carpool and whatever to, to conserve. HOV is, is, in my opinion, not a very smart policy. Like that's kind of, I view that as kind of like a top-down government planning right, policy. Right, exactly, yeah. Where it's effectively saying, well, you need to have multiple people in the car to use this specific space. But I, I don't know. I mean, I think in a lot of cases, there aren't going to be multiple people in a car. It's kind of like trying to engineer a certain outcome that I don't think is destined necessarily to happen. So here's an alternative way that you get a lot of, that you might have a lot of ride sharing besides just having an HOV lane is if you have market pricing, I actually do think that more people, so if you have HOV, I mean, if you have market-based pricing and you're having a bidding process for the use of the roads, I think in the peak situations where the prices are highest, you would likelier have private buses because it's sort of like, 10 people using a bus are going to be able to outbid a single occupancy mm. driver for the use of road space. So it's kind of like, I think in that situation, you would have exactly what the, the pro HOV people want to accomplish, but it would happen through a market-based situation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just to, to avoid confusion, I'm not for, I'm saying the existing system right now is so bad and it's like they've had to resort to peak pricing and or congestion pricing or peak load, whatever they call it. And things like the HOV lane, but you're right, the HOV lane is stupid because, like, if you were in a yeah. helicopter looking down, you would see during rush hour all the lanes crawling along, and then this one lane that's moving decently, but yet there's not that many cars in it. So that's right. the, that's it's right. like they're taking one lane out of commission, or you know, making it at 75% capacity, which is the exact wrong thing to do if the problem is right. congestion. And so, yeah, you're right. If they just charged a high, if they charged a market clearing price they would automatically give people incentives and they would carpool and stuff because they'd go, holy cow, it's going to be $30 to use the bridge? Well, why don't we all, you know, we'll park over here and we'll all take Jim's car and we'll split it. You know, people would yeah. do that, but if you really needed to go somewhere, 
in your stuff, you'd, you'd suck it up and pay it, and you could because now all the traffic would be moving. You would, so the point being, in case people are missing the punch, traffic jams are not a fact of nature, or that, that's just driving for it. That's that's a, a shortage. There's there's the road is being underpriced. That's what a traffic jam is. Right. I mean, yeah, it's the same thing with airlines. It's kind of like why is it more expensive to fly the week before Christmas than the week after Christmas? Because mm-hmm. that's when the most people are doing it. So this idea of like dynamic pricing and surge pricing, and some people even call it price gouging, although I, I view that as kind of like a pejorative right, type right. Of phrase. But I mean, it, it's the same general principle. It's like the demand and the supply affect the price. And so when the demand goes up and the supply remains stagnant, the price is going to go up. But I mean, it also, that has the effect of distributing the demand across a longer time span and mm-hmm. has a certain efficiency to it. And so I think that applies whether you're talking about planes or trains or Ubers or, in this case, the use of a road. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion to explain why you should contribute to The Bob Murphy Show if you haven't yet already. I'm telling you guys, I got a lot of stuff that I want to cover, not just the interviews, great interviews I got lined up, but also some old school material talking about the roots of progressivism, postmodernism, all kinds of stuff that I think is important to understand what the heck is going on right now in U.S. uh, culture and politics. But, you know, my time is limited. And so uh, the more of you who donate, it just means the more time I can devote to the podcast because I'd love to be doing this and nothing else. But we're not quite there yet. I appreciate the contributions that have really been flowing in. I appreciate that a lot. If you haven't yet done so and you're on the fence, go ahead, give it a whirl. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks, everybody. Just to switch topics, I know you cover a lot of stuff. Do you get into um, like food vendors? Is, is that an, is that something you cover? Yeah, a little bit. So um, that's that kind of goes back to a zoning thing. Right. And um, we're talking. We were talking earlier about the way that zoning can be used as a form of regulatory capture, and I think it is ninety nine percent of the time used for precisely that. But there's a lot of zoning that prevents food carts from being able to open up on the streets. And like, you know, they'll basically have these sidewalk ordinances that prevent a food vendor from, from being able to operate or that will very much limit how many food food vendors can operate mm-hmm. in a given neighborhood. And that's a restaurant lobby type thing. Right. You know, mm-hmm. restaurants don't want the competition. And so that's, they use zoning as a way to block it. And you look at, um, to, to go back to like the medallion system, you look at New York City, the ability to get a permit to operate in New York City as a food vendor is like obscenely expensive. And so that's why you kind of have this very corporate, you know, if you you probably know yourself, since you're familiar mm-hmm. with New York City, like the food, the, the food cart street food scene is really not all that good in New York City compared to some other cities right. because the cost of licensure is so high. And so it's kind of like these corporate hot dog sellers that don't really bring much creativity into the process. Whereas a place like Portland, ironically enough, has been really liberalized on this front. And so they have like all these really interesting food cart vendors all over the city. And like you'll go to a given block and there will be dozens of vendors selling Indian food, Southern food, New Orleans food, like Chinese, yada, 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 everything under the sun. Mm-hmm. And so that's an example of liberalization. And also like for, in terms of like to, to give a, 
a leg up to the you know the struggling poor person who's just really you know got a great work ethic or whatever. like that's you're right like that's the kind of thing like especially someone like you know who maybe doesn't speak the language well or but they're a really good cook and so this yeah. is an area yeah without too much startup capital they can have a little food cart and set up a shop there on the corner and da 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 and that but yeah it's it's effectively impossible for them for such a person to do it in like New York because it's so prohibitively expensive right yeah and I mean a lot of market urbanism a lot of the ideology you know for for some reason people who our critics of capitalism view capitalism as like this is a paradigm that helps the big banks and the big developers and the big corporate millionaires. But I view capitalism and market urbanism specifically as something that is designed to reduce the barriers to entry. So it's actually in a, in a way it's like anti corporation and anti big bank mm -hmm. and anti big restaurant and anti big developer. It's effectively saying if you if you loosen the regulations more people can participate in the system and there will be more competition. And that, I think that goes for food carts. I mean, food cart would be probably the ultimate example of yeah, that. Yeah. So, and also too, with zoning, like, you, you know, the one of the complaints is, oh, affordable housing. And so, oh, we need the government to have more subsidies and to build more. And no, it's because of the zoning. That's why housing is so unaffordable, yeah. you know, in these areas. Um it's undeniable, at least in the United States, I can't speak to other countries, that the big cities typically are totally run by Democrats, like, they're, you know, machine politics. And, yeah. and why, do you have a theory for why that is? Yeah, not really. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is innate in the sense that it seems like the more that people cluster, the more likely they are to be liberal. And that's generally been shown. A lot of demographers have demonstrated that, that the more spread out people are, the more likely they are to be conservative and the more concentrated they are, they, the more likely they are to be liberal. And so I think the Democratic and Republican parties have kind of taken that strategy and that message accordingly. Like it seems like the Republican Party is entirely branded towards rural America um, and the Democratic Party is entirely branded towards mm -hmm. urban America. The interesting thing is that it seems this seems to cause them to get away from their principles in a lot of cases, like, you know, kind of talking earlier about the whole conservative effort to say that that rezonings are a form of socialism and they're trying to government engineering coming in and trying to mm -hmm. eradicate the suburbs. Well, that seems like a case where the party is getting away from its capitalist roots and it's just trying to appeal to low density rural and suburban voters. And I think it's kind of the same with Democrats in a lot of ways. It's like they'll get away from their their ideas of maybe like of, of what liberalism was traditionally supposed to be. And they're just appealing to urban voters. And so it, it kind of has this weird way of separating and dividing America. Yeah, I think that's true. So I hadn't thought about the concentration per se. What I was going to say is, maybe this will be the last thing I'll, I'll ask you here because we're kind of hitting up on the time constraint. Do you, I could imagine somebody saying something like, yeah, I mean, I get the, I get markets are cool and everything. And, you know, you got to be careful about big government and the nanny state. But I mean, I would be okay if some dinky little town in Kansas wanted to try an experiment in low taxes and deregulation and, you know, let's get rid of zoning and let entrepreneurs do whatever they want. But like, are you kidding me in Manhattan? with all those people crammed in there, we're just going to have anarchy. Like, doesn't that seem really risky? Like, don't you want to have 
central planning when it's the stakes are so high and there's so many people there. Like I, I could see just that seems very intuitive and commonsensical that even to me, like even as I'm saying it, like I don't feel like I'm being unreasonable by by thinking, whoa, that sounds like a dangerous experiment to introduce too much liberty where there's millions of people all crammed together. That seems kind of, let's not rock the boat. Well, I would say that New York, I mean, I guess the different things I would say to that is that New York City was at some point not nearly as regulated as it is now. Mm-hmm. And it it didn't completely collapse. I mean, basically, that's how a great modern industrial city was managed to be built right, is right. because of the lack of regulation. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of the biggest problems that it has now, particularly regarding the homelessness and the and the um and some of the school segregation and some of the high housing affordability issues, like to me, that's caused by the government. It's not caused by the market. And so I don't, I guess I don't really see much of a downside to just unleashing everything and right, letting the market right. work. But at the same time, I think to, to go back to an earlier divide that I was talking about, like a lot of market urbanism is not necessarily saying let's do all out libertarianism on a place like New York City. Let's work in a market direction. Like let's have let's have policies that incrementally take us there. So that's not going to be throwing out the, the zoning map entirely because that's not going to happen anyway. It's more like let's have rezonings and let's have a broader liberalization of the zoning codes so that more can be built everywhere all across the city, you know, and not one neighborhood is is really like having to take too much of the change. Yeah, and by the way, I agree with you. Obviously, I was being somewhat tongue-in-cheek there, but yeah, I, th- I think you're right that, these bustling cities developed in an area of relative laissez-faire and yeah. that's why they're such big. And then they, they become so rich because I think there's a lot of reasons economically with, with the division of labor and stuff that economies of scale, you bring a lot of people yeah. and crunch them together. Absolutely. The productivity goes through the roof. And so like, you, you know, also you don't, you don't have much living space. So there's downsides, but it's sort of like the reason people, uh, coalesce there and, and coagulate, coagulate the word, <laughs> the reason they come together like that is because it's way more productive, you know, that like, it's right. not, you know, you have people on the skyscraper with all the lawyers and engineers and, you know, everybody all within, you know, the same building and stuff. And so those big cities, they, they can afford the luxury of crazy, wasteful, you know, big government programs and, you know, liberalism in the modern Amer- political sense that they can afford that overhead and that waste because they're otherwise so wealthy. Well, yeah, there, there's an NYU economist named Elaine Berteau mm-hmm. who is very popular in the market urbanism movement, and he describes cities as labor markets. They are effectively just places that people go to work jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a vast majority of people go to cities for that reason. Right. Cities have always had the most jobs and the best jobs, and so that's why people move there. And then some of the recreational things kind of like spill over from that um, and create yet more jobs. But yeah, I mean, I look at it as like their job markets, their agglomeration economies, they're great centers of economic productivity, and they generate a lot of money. And so that ultimately becomes money that governments can go out and waste and further right. waste. But uh, And obviously in the U.S., like I think just about all the major um, brainstorm here have to do with like access to waterways and stuff. So clearly, yeah. you know, the reason the big cities are where they are historically was because of shipping and stuff like that. So clearly it was commercial. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's also, incidentally, one of the arguments about like the, the, the welfare states like Bernie Sanders likes that they, right. they got rich 
by having relative laissez-faire and then they could afford their big generous welfare safety nets and that and their growth slowed. Yeah. So when people point to, you know, all oh, the social democracies over uh, in Scandinavia or whatever, and that proves socialism works, it's like, no, actually it really doesn't. But in any event. No, one, one, one comes before the other, yeah. you know, like you got to have the growth and the, the capitalism to produce the money to create all those mm. programs. I said that was it, but let me give you a chance. How, cause I'm sure the readers now are, are uh, on the edge of their seats. So what, what is, why are there the homeless problem and what, what would you do about it, Scott? Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, not every homeless person is in the same situation. Right. Uh, there's, there's some people who are severely mentally ill, um, you know, and they're always going to need government assistance in my opinion. But I mean, I think a lot of the, a lot of the homeless situation, a lot of the reason some people are homeless is not because necessarily even their own problems, but they are living in really expensive housing markets and they're either underemployed or they're not working, they're working jobs that don't pay them very well. And they're having trouble finding decent housing in their markets. And I think the main market urbanism answer is you got to really liberalize the market and allow and loosen zoning and allow a lot more housing construction because that's going to make that's going to suppress prices across the entire metro. And it's going to make developers more likely to build affordable starter homes that can be bought by the working class. Okay, so you don't think it's so much a problem of homelessness as houselessness, if I could be somewhat, you get know what I'm saying? Like, in other words, it's not that there's like an issue of lifestyle. It's more, there's no an economic issue and these people really just can't afford shelter. Uh, yeah, the lifestyle issue, that's kind of, I guess that's a, a tough one because I think what you're saying there is that there may be some people who actually do want to live homeless. Well, I'm, I mean, maybe want's not the right word, but, in other words, that like I can imagine some people saying, no, it, it's not just, oh, yeah, prices are high and they got put like whether some like cynical Scrooge person who's like, ah, they, they choose to do that or like, uh, you know, left left wing, like sort of social worker type like, oh, no, you're looking at this like it's a rational cost benefit, Scott. No, these people have you know genuine uh, needs and they need us to come in and, you know, help them work on their their emotional problems and they need to get, you know, proper treatment and that, that, that. So I, I realize you you anticipated some of that, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I think it's a combination. So I I think there are people. I there really are, you know, the the places in the U.S. that are dealing the most with homelessness are the ones that have the high the high housing prices. Mm -hmm. Like homelessness is actually decreasing across the country. It's increasing in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York. Mm -hmm. So I'm viewing this really above all as a housing affordability issue. And I think if housing were made more affordable, mm -hmm. there'd be a lot of people who are homeless now and working who would not be homeless if right. homes were affordable. Now, beyond that, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of situations of people who are dealing with alcohol issues and substance abuse and domestic abuse and mental illness. And so I think that's where the homelessness uh, situation becomes a lot more complicated mm -hmm. and people have very different opinions on, you know, what types of programs or whether there even needs to be programs to help them. And so I guess, I, I guess the homeless, um, the specific programs that I have come to like the most are what's called transitional housing, mm -hmm. 
where you have all these like different nonprofits and a lot of them are religious oriented as well that try to take people who are struggling with like say substance abuse and give them training on how to kick their habit and give them like life skills and job skills mm -hmm. so that they can enter the workforce and become self-sufficient. And so I'm, I tend to like those right. uh, more than just sort of like the giveaway programs. Yeah. I mean, in your experience, like I, again, not that I'm an expert by any stretch on this stuff, but to the limits that I looked at these things, it's, I think it's safe to say that the private charities, especially the you know church-based ones, you know, they're there to make sure like people literally don't die in the street. You know, I mean, they're, it's out of compassion, but they would view as a success if somebody gets rehabilitated and doesn't need them anymore. Whereas the government, it really is a function of the more people that they're serving, the bigger their budgets are and whatnot. So, right. you know, I'm sure that, you know, the individual person who goes to work there, you know, wants to help and whatever, but in terms of the institutional logic, the, the government agency wants there to be more people who need them. Right. Yeah. I mean, some people call that the homeless industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things we're seeing there is there, there are programs like Housing First that effectively just say, if you just house people, they'll be off the street. And so they'll be taking like it, it might be a net win for the city in some ways because you're not you're not having to pay for the high price of policing and health issues of having people live homeless. So if you just put them in stable housing, that'll help with the problem a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I, th I think the problem with a lot of housing first programs is they don't really try to like rehabilitate anybody. Mm -hmm. They basically just say you can stay in a home and, but you know, it's not, it's not, it's kind of like a bandaid solution. That's not really addressing the problem of why they're homeless, why they need public assistance. And so that's why I said earlier that, like, I think the transitional housing models are much better than housing first at trying to turn people's lives around and get them off of whatever situation has caused them to be homeless and actually make them self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, I think from a libertarian, if, if you're looking at this from a conservative libertarian perspective and you're kind of like innately skeptical of government programs, I think um, transitional housing, homeless housing is a lot more effective and kind of better in a lot of ways than just housing first, which is more of a, of like a giveaway in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, great. Uh, we covered a lot of material. I think we can stop yeah. there as a good logical point. So besides your, your website, is there anywhere else you want me to point people who are interested in learning more? Sure. Um, I think if, so we have a website, we got Twitter handles, Instagram handles, Facebook, but I think if you're going to look at what the heart of the market urbanism movement is and the best destination to get good conversation every day, uh, go to the Market Urbanism Report Facebook group. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's uh, we have multiple posts per day and it's a really active conversation. It's about 10,000 people. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. So, folks, this is BobMurphyShow.com slash 132 and I'll put links to all this stuff. Well, Scott, thanks for your time and I'm sure uh, the folks got to learn a lot about market urbanism. Thank you, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.